Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dollars Geoengineering podcast. As part of our series of Dirty Cash, we're talking today to Undo, who are in the business of cleaning up climate change for profit. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much, Andrew. So I believe we've got Ben and Jinran here on the show today. So if you want to start off by giving us a bit of an intro to who you are and what you do, that will be great to help everybody understand your roles in the company. And then we'll go into a deep dive and what Undo is doing to save the world. Yeah, fantastic. So my name's Ben Westcott. I'm the head of enhanced weathering for Undo. And my role is to operationalize the delivery of this technology. So, so scaling it up commercially and then working very closely, obviously, with with Jinran, who, uh, who I'll let introduce himself now. Hi, my name is Jinran Leo. I'm the head of science and research at Undo, and I oversee the development of a robust MRV approach in order to firstly model and then take infield measurements to quantify how much carbon is being sequestered. Okay, so basically, Ben, you squish rocks and throw them at fields, and Jinran, you count molecules that come off those rocks in a crude approximation, right? Yeah, that's that's a good crude approximation. I mean, the squishing is already done for us, but we can talk a bit about the operational cycle and the, and the process as we go through. Okay, so we do unfortunately have some humanity students and uh, graduates and professors and such like that listen to this podcast. So we have to dumb everything down a little bit for them. So do you want to give us a brief pricey of what exactly the science is behind what you're doing, why you're doing it, how it works? Yeah, I'm happy to take that. So weathering is a process that happens in nature all the time. It's been happening for billions of years. And that process happens when you have rain falling through the atmosphere. You get CO2 dissolving into that rain, forming mildly carbonic acid. As those acids are falling onto mineral-rich rocks like basalt, it's it's weathering away that rock by reacting with the fast-reacting minerals in there like magnesium, potassium, calcium, sodium. And then as that weathering is taking place, it's breaking down the rock and then forming bicarbonates, which are then washed out into rivers and then finally out to ocean where it's locked away for geological time. So that's the natural weathering process. It's happening all around us now. And scientists think some 180 million tons of CO2 is sequestered per year just through that natural process. And we're kind of speeding up that process. That's the enhanced part by using the powderized form of basalt. So you massively increase the surface area. And I think the analogy I like to use is, you know, if you're trying to brew coffee and you just have a big handful of coffee beans, it's going to take a pretty long time to get a pretty mild drink. But if you if you smash up that coffee bean, powderize it, and then you put it in the cafeteria, you get a pretty strong brew very quickly because you're massively increasing the reactive surface area. Uh, and that's what we're essentially doing by taking powderized form of basalt we can increase the surface area and therefore speed up that natural process by, by many, many orders of magnitudes and, and therefore sequester CO2 at a higher rate. So that's enhanced. So it's like the equivalent of cooking up cracked rocks, but doing it with actual rocks to get a bigger climate change hit off them, right? That's the rough process that you're following. So where do you get your rocks from? And are they special and shiny in some way? So the rock is is special and shiny. It it matters. So there is there are only certain silicate rocks which will behave in the fashion that, that Jinran's outlined. And they only occur in, in certain areas across the world. So first of all, we have to find the right geological provinces, find this material. And then because the approach that we take is that we use 
crushed rock finds, which are a byproduct of the aggregate industry. So within the areas that you've located your silicate rock, in, in our case basalt, you then have to find places where it's being quarried, and then you have to find the places where it's not being incorporated into other products. And that's the material that we use commercially. So you, you turn to professional rock squishers to get your raw material, and you're looking for stuff for the right terroir, like uh, fine wine growers, so that you have the uh, appropriate vintage for uh, sequestering CO2, right? Yeah, spot on. Yeah. Okay. So give me a general answer to the question, but if you could be a bit more specific, you know, what, what are these rocks and where do you get them from? Are they from, you know, one mine, 10 mines, 100 mines all over the world or just in one particular place on the upslope of a uh, sun-drenched hill in Gloucestershire? Yeah, so we find, you, you find basalt all over the world. So it's a, it's a volcanic rock and wherever you have those volcanic provinces, you will very often find basalt. In the UK, for example, we find it in Scotland and in northeast England and there's some out in Northern Ireland as well. And um, it's widespread. We also find it. So the Hadrian's Wall structure and the Giant's Causeway are both basalts, aren't they, in the UK? Yeah, so certainly Giant's Causeway is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, well, the, the Hadrian's Wall sits atop a, a large igneous province, right? So That's you have right, a, a basalt. It's a flood basalt that's yeah. been overlaying with other rocks. Yeah, absolutely. And that creates the, the escarpment of Hadrian's Wall. But you only, your rocks are only useful if they're squished. So how do you mesh with the rock squishing industry to get the fines that you need? And how fine are they? Are they like flour? Are they like salt? Are they like gravel? What? Yeah, so the aggregate industry quarries basalt amongst other rocks and it uses it for construction purposes, principally in roads. When you produce the chips that go into road, which are about the sort of length of your thumb, give or take, then as a byproduct, you produce something called crush rock fines. And these are generally four millimeters and down, so all the way down to you know microns. And that's the product that we use. And when you say microns, obviously when you get down to micron scale, you get problems with windblown dust, and you don't generally want to be inhaling large amounts of micron grade basalt do you so how do you control blowiness of your squished rocks well the great thing in the uk is that it rains a lot so we generally get a moisture content of you know somewhere between five and ten percent and so you get binding of those very small particles to the bigger ones so that when you spread it you get much lower dust volumes we're also working with some really innovative agricultural contractors who've got some specific equipment that they've developed like, to keep the like, dust levels down and um, they, they are a bit like caleb although they've spent less time on the telly okay so the things i've seen you doing that they look like um grit lorries that you drive around a field right so if you if you live in an icy country but one that's not too icy where they grit the roads as opposed to having snow chains then you'll see grit lorries going around in winter uh, spreading rock on them um, on the fields and then um spreading rock crush rock on the roads with rock salt in it um and um you're using something that's a bit like that aren't you yeah so it's really similar it's existing agricultural equipment and it was originally developed for spreading lime which is you know it's a it's a very similar product and you so, know the so great... what is lime is lime because lime can mean two things can it? it can mean crushed limestone but it can also mean kilned lime as well and I remember getting quite confused about what constitutes lime for agricultural purposes. And I actually think that in different circumstances, two different things can be referred to as lime. So 
do you understand agricultural liming to be? Well, it's a it's a it's a product which is put on to raise the soil pH, and that's the that's the purpose of it. And it's in a similar sort of. It actually tends to be far finer than than what we're using. But the point is, is that it, the, the equipment is it calcium, works. Is it calcium oxide, or is it calcium carbonate, or what? Uh, it's, I think it's calcium carbonate, but I'm not I'm not a, an agricultural specialist. Okay, so you're using. Um, uh, similar equipment that looks like a road gritter drive around a field and then what type of fields are you using it on yeah so we we can work with any form of agriculture and so whether it's broad acre crops or whether it's pasture land whether it's under regenerative practice or you know conventional practice it, it doesn't matter because the reaction will take place in that surface level of the of the root zone and then you know gradually the product will work its way out through the soil hydrology so we can we can work with a really broad church there are a couple of things we avoid we obviously avoid runoff areas we avoid areas prone to flooding because we don't want this to end up we want this to stay in the soil and we avoid areas like um of high ecological value because there is there are some co-benefits to this which include a change to the ph in the soil and obviously we wouldn't want to disrupt anything with high ecological value so you've got an if you've got an acid mire or something like that it's quite a rare habitat then you wouldn't really want to cover it with um with alkali material that might change the ph right and and no, destroy the no, microorganisms nor, nor sink our tractors in it nor what nor would we want to oh, sink oh, our tractors, oh, sink in the it. tractors in it right okay yeah. so yeah you don't want to destroy the ground structure either right and you you're always distributing from ground vehicles you don't use drones or anything like that the great thing about this is we're ex we are integrating across existing industries so we don't need new equipment or new technology so no we don't use drones we don't use aircraft we can go to the agricultural industry and we can support those people who are already working in the fields okay and who pays and what do they get for what they do is are they doing it because they want the carbon credits that they resell or are they doing it because they want the agricultural benefits no, it's our, our business model is that we sell carbon credits. People who wish to offset their um, their emissions through removals. And through that business model, we can afford to buy, haul and spread the rock. And so when we're working with farmers, they get the co-benefits free of charge in return to our being able to operate on their land. And, and we keep the carbon credits from the very specific rock weathering, which is taking place as a result of our operations. Okay, so you're basically spreading the rock for free from the farmer's point of view, and then the people who buy your carbon credits are paying for the process. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it's worth just picking up on some of the co-benefits. And, you know, Jin can talk a bit about the, the trials that we're doing to better understand this. Yeah, I mean, 100% happy to follow up on that. I mean, yes, so we're offering farmers basalt on their fields free of charge, and of course, they allow us to spread the basalt on their farms. And what they get in return is there's myriad of co-benefits as a result of enhanced weathering. And the most prominent one for sure is that the chemical reaction of the basalt weathering in the soil naturally raises this level of pH in the soil. So I think, Andrew, you touched on earlier. Why does the pH of soils matter to farmers? And why is it generally alkaline that's preferable rather than acid that farmers want? Yeah, no, great question. So. I I don't come from a farming background, but so as far as I understand, you know, you have all the nutrients in the soil naturally. And if your soil pH is too low, it actually 
blocks the access of the, the plants and the crops to accessing and picking up those nutrients that's already in your soil. So you actually want your soil pH to be naturally at around about 6.8 level to make the existing nutrients readily available. And so, yeah, so I think you don't want it too low and also nor do you want it really high. You want your your soil pH to be at, at a middle level. Okay. And that, that's normally higher, you know, normally you're adding alkalinity to farms as opposed to adding acids, right? So I'm guessing that you're on typical farms, the yeah. pH is normally a bit low. Yeah, so a bit too acid to be optimal, right? Yeah. So over time, as as farming takes place, the soil pH naturally drifts downwards to lower pH levels. Uh, So farmers typically have to reapply lime, as you mentioned earlier, every two to five years, depending on their their farm and their conditions. But obviously, that has a applied cost, and also a single application of lime raises your pH significantly, and then it gradually, well, it very quickly drops off over two to five years, whereas the enhanced rock weathering can replace the need of that quantity of lime because this chemical reaction, which is slow weathering process on their fields, as that chemical reaction is taking place, it's naturally raising the soil pH. So yeah, so it can it can be it can remove or reduce the farmer's need to lime. And then if we are able to reapply basalt on, on certain after so many years, then that, that can kind of even be a complete replacement for the need for lime. Okay. And how do you know it works from both a carbon and farming point of view? What monitoring does your firm undertake to make that work? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, I mean, we are conducting extensive both. So we have a geochemical model and we have infield measurements to confirm our what our models are predicting. So you have this enhanced rock weathering process. There are various chemical reactions happening behind the scenes, turning carbon dioxide, water to uh, carbonic acids. Then that's reacting with the various minerals and then forming bicarbonates. So that reaction for various contents of the basalt is known. And then as a result, we have a model that we've developed, which kind of shows us based on the weathering conditions, how much basalt is weathered. And then as a result of that, we can we have a prediction of how much we expect the pH to shift. And we have large scale, we have small plot trials and large scale experiments and mesocosm experiments in our fields, which are designed to allow us to kind of measure those predicted changes in ph and other indicators so you, i've seen your meso, mesocosms on twitter and they are in fact fa- fancy plant pots aren't they they are no because uh, they don't have a bottom unlike a plant pot it'll be absolutely just, oh, right because we're collecting leachates through the bottom but yes you're right they're essentially 30 centimeter deep cored soil cores that enable us to measure different levels and depth intensively you know changes in soil conditions and soil ph is one of those and okay. I should say earlier, and is your background in geochemistry then? Is that is that how you've come to this? No, my background is actually in high energy astroparticle physics. That's a very weird mix. That like that's like, did you kind of fail your exams and then you end up being a geochemistry as a result, or or, uh, or no, did you be very good at it? I was very successful at building large scale neutrino and dark matter detectors for many years and i was well, you weren't you can't have been that successful because we haven't found any dark matter yet so well i like to say we we built the best detector and not finding dark matter in the world okay <laughs> uh, you know i think these are large-scale projects you know so i spent over a decade at ucl where i think andrew you're based and you know we have been involved in theory i am based at ucl or i don't need to go there i work remotely so but, but yeah whilst it's a 
an unusual career change. What made you decide that you wanted to go and mess around with bits of squished rock in mud instead of doing <laughs> yeah. fancy pants neutrino stuff? Absolutely. I mean, these are multi-decade experiments and I, I've spent a long time doing there, but I've always kind of uh, very openly said that, you know, climate change is the existential crisis of our time and is an issue that needs rapid solutions to address. So, so it's your desire to save the world rather than a preference for mud that's driving you along, right? <laughs> yes, and, uh, but I do like mud and I spend a lot of my time in particle physics down in deep mines, so I don't okay. like it dirty. But you're a, you're a mud hopper of various forms. You're happy. You're subject agnostic, but but mud focused in your yeah, career. I don't mind getting dirty for sure. Or, or everything else dirty, I'd imagine, if you're working on a farm or down a mine. Right. Yeah. So um, with um, with Undo, you're obviously giving this stuff away to, for free to farmers, but this is something they'd normally pay for. So what exactly, you know, how are you, how are you apportioning those benefits? I mean, it would seem sensible to charge the farmer something. Why do you decide to charge them nothing at all? Yeah, so we're bringing something new to them, Adam, and all of this is relative, of course. So there's a there's a strong history of the use of crushed rock finds in horticulture, and actually, if you if you go back in history, there are other examples of people using crushed rock finds to improve the soil health. But it's not happened much recently, and there's not a lot of experience of doing it in the uk and so that's why we've gone out and we've said to farmers look you know you get the nutritional benefits so we contract with them and our contract says that we keep the carbon associated with the enhanced weathering they get the nutritional benefits and also we don't make any claim on any of the other carbon they might be sequestering through regenerative practice for example so the organic carbon generates but isn't that quite closely linked i mean like if you're putting basalt mm-hmm. fines on a on a farm then aren't you creating a lot of pore space within that basalt that is naturally going to create a lot of space for soil organic carbon sequestration in a way that probably wouldn't happen if you didn't put your basalt in place so i mean the the line is that there are two separate carbon pools the organic and the inorganic and we're just operating in the inorganic there's no published research at the moment which shows a direct link between the two although that might change because there are more and more people looking at this and there may be a positive relationship but at this stage we're treating them as as separate and that's a pretty conservative way of approaching the problem okay when you say conservative i mean like you've got to come up with some metrics and mechanics you can't have a whole team of uh, soil scientists crawling over every single farm so how do you know that um, farmer giles is the same as your test plot or are you just taking very conservative figures and sort of halving the amount of carbon you're storing? Because you could end up, you know, if, his, if Farmer Giles' cows come stomp all over your uh, field and squish the basalt down into, say, a heavy clay soil that's not very, doesn't have a lot of through flow, then you could end up with a situation where a lot of the carbon goodness is sort of, or carbon absorbing goodness is locked up for 20 years. And therefore, you know, by the time uh, the carbon has been taken out of the atmosphere, then we're all pushing up daisies so how um uh, well you might not be because you're a bit younger than me but i will probably be pushing up daisies by that point so um how um how do you know the specific farms that you're dealing with have actually got the carbon characteristics that are similar to your test plots principally because we operate in areas uh, we're heavily constrained by the cost of haulage and so we have to operate in the areas that are close to our rock supplies and consequently, we're dealing with very similar climatic and soil conditions on our test plot as we've we've, are. we've actually got at least one other podcast on this. Uh, one of 
guys, I can't remember the guy's name, he looked at Rock Haulage in Switzerland and the mm-hmm. uh, upshot of it was that if you have to haul your rocks a long way, then it pretty much ruins the carbon benefit because if they're so heavy that you use a lot of fuel moving them, right? Yeah, and that's that's exactly what we find. So we go you know, pretty narrow and pretty deep around those areas where we can source the rock. And that's, you know, that's... And where are you looking for customers specifically? Uh, so... You know, just Gloucestershire or... No, so, our, our, you know, our customers strictly are those who buy the carbon credits. The places where we're conducting operations in the UK are the central belt of Scotland, where we've got, you know, really good rock supplies. And that runs all the way up and up the east coast towards Aberdeen. And then down the northeast coast, down towards Newcastle and slightly south towards Darlington. And then again, across sort of a66 so that's just in the uk okay so this is the this is of the northern uh, yeah basically anywhere that william the conqueror harried uh, or anywhere that was beyond hadrian's wall you're quite interested in but anything that's uh, in the more civilized bits of england that you're less less fussed about right not so much yeah. your bag there's that big geological divide right and everything off to the southeast it's just a totally different geology and and interestingly hence the landscape is that softer um, that softer landscape as a result but I think that's a separate conversation Well what is the difference? I mean I thought got a lot more basalts in the regions that you're working in anyway so aren't you just adding basalt to basalt or do I misunderstand my geology? Yeah so the um, it's important the bedrock of the soil is obviously you know it's an important factor but the other thing that we find in those areas is that we are working on largely acid soils so you know Jinran's talked about the liming effect of this and that's those are the areas where this has particular value to farms. Okay, so you're looking for soils that are prone to acidity and then you're going and supplying alkalinity for those specific farms and soils, right? So you're, yeah. you're choosing your battles as to where you can add the most value, right? That's the, that's the, the basic principle that you're following. Yeah, yeah I mean... That, that's right. Sorry, Jim, I'm gone. No, no, no. I mean, yes, in part. I, but also, you know, where the basalts are here in Scotland, North England... You know, because we're only operating within 20 miles of those quarries, the soil, you know, soil forms from weathering naturally, right, over geological time. So, you know, the parent material, the bedrock there, because the quarries are only within 20 miles, are not so different in its content to the soil surrounding it. But the areas in south of England we don't operate in, the conditions, the bedrocks are quite different, right? And that, that could have different but, results. But help me understand that. If you're, if, you're quarry, if you're quarrying rocks from similar parent material to what the soil is made out of, right, then surely there's loads and loads and loads of crushed basalt in the soil already. Is it just that it's all weathered, crushed basalt? Yeah, it's been weathered over a really long time <clears throat> to form soil, which is then being crop growing it over time, which is then changing various conditions. And then also, yeah, which is why then over time you have to reapply nutrients and liming to change the soil condition for optimum for crop growth, right? Okay. So you're you're basically taking soils that are already naturally consisting of weathered basaltic rock, but then you're replacing it with unweathered basaltic rock so that you're then enabling that soil to work again. You're kind of giving it a bit of a makeover, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the rock that was there obviously has been weathered for a really long time, <clears throat> that weathering process, releasing those calcium, magnesium, those nutrients out. And then over geological time, if the rock is wet, broken down to form soil, but then obviously based on the land practice, soil practices and management, the soil has now various. Yes. Yeah, so the soil is not really, it once was the, the basalt rock that sits at the bedrock of that soil. 
but yeah, now it's changed and we're just adding. So, so the addition of the extra powderized basalt on top, which over time we anticipate will weather away, the nutrients will be released over. So I mentioned earlier, the chemical reaction gives you the changes in pH, but it also releases lots of the nutrients that's locked up in the basalt, the sodium, magnesium, calcium, phosphorus, um, which are, which are good for crop growth as well, which are beneficial for crop. So those are released over that weathering time as well. But at some point, those rocks will be fully weathered and then they will kind of just... Like biting into a chocolate eclair to get the chocolatey bit out of the middle, right? <laughs> yeah, but then once they're weathered fully, which we anticipate to be over a 50-year period, then then they just kind of become part of the soil, yeah. And then they're no longer giving you the nu- nutrient release benefits and the, the pH shifts that you, you're expecting. And then at which point you might need to add more in order to continue getting those benefits, I guess. Okay, so you're you're uh, accelerating the process of soil recreation and taking tired old soils and then refreshing them, as would be the case from, say, a volcano or um, yeah. if you imagine somewhere that's in a, a periglacial environment when you've got um, glacial uh, till that comes down from the uplands and floods out on, on your alluvial plains and keeps your farms working, right? So you're you're accelerating would be these natural processes that restore farms and the byproduct is carbon of that or carbon sequestration. So you're making that process well for the farmer and work well for your carbon passing customers, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, naturally, there are a lot of very fertile land around active volcanoes and it's been the downfall of many ancient civilizations, rise and fall, I guess, through myriad of volcanic eruption phases. And, and those volcanoes surrounding areas do give you very rich soils as similar reasons for enhanced rock weathering as well. Yeah, as you mentioned. Okay, right, fine. Well, I've got an idea of how the sort of geochemical process works. So how does the money work? I mean, how, how are you selling your carbon credits and to whom? I think you might be involved in Frontier in some way. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we've got a number of we've got a number of buyers, and they tend to be they tend to be organisations which want to stimulate supply in the in the carbon market. And so they're taking an early position in terms of purchases. They conduct their own due diligence. They generally have their own in-house scientific teams, and you know they buy from us on the basis that we're a new company. It's a new technology. And we're putting the diligence. It's been not. It's been right? No, they're not. These people have got long-term requirements for offsets. They see enhanced weathering as you know part of their long-term plan, but they recognise that they have to stimulate the market through purchase if people are going to scale up. Okay, I mean, I did a survey on this on Twitter the other day to try and understand a bit more about this market to ask people whether they thought it was going to be little firms or big firms. That dominated the enhanced weathering market, right? And the consensus was it would be a mix, like construction. So you have some very large construction companies that will do things like airports and rail tunnels and stuff, and then you've got lots of much smaller companies that will come and build an extension for you. So the consensus seemed to be, and people thought that the um, the market for enhanced weathering would be a bit like that. Now, the concern I've got with with what you're doing, I mean, you know, I don't have any particular kind of physics concern with it or anything like that i mean it seems like quite a good idea really compared to some of the other nonsense i have to put up with doing this um it all seems fairly sensible um but the thing that baffles me about what you're doing is i just don't really get the commercials i don't understand why what you're doing is any more sophisticated than just putting some rocks in a hammer mill and then throwing them out of the back of a tractor on a field i mean it's not the case that pretty much any fool can do what you're doing or is there something secret that i don't understand 
you're not I'm, telling me. I'm, Andrew, I'm delighted to say that any fool could do what I'm doing. Um, what you say is that you know you're throwing rocks out of the back of the out of the back of the um, out of the back of a vehicle onto land. Well, of course, you know the carbon market is underpinned by our ability to verify what's taken place. So we have to have the systems to audit or to be able to be ready for audit to show where the rocks come from, what the nature of the rock was, where it was hauled to, where it was spread, and and you know the density that it was put on. And then, of course. You know, if that was the trivial bit, and in all honesty, it's not, you know, we've had to build our own data system to do that. But then the really clever bit is the stuff that Jinran and the team doing, which is showing how that weathering is taken place over time. You know, the real challenge is this isn't like direct air capture where it's meterable. We have to model it. We have to do extensive infield measurement. And, you know, we're committing a huge amount of resource into nailing down the science behind that that infield. Well, if you if you if you value weapon. proposition, well, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I don't find that particularly hard to believe, right? But if the value proposition is as you describe it, then what's the point of you describing yourself or painting yourself as being a, a rock squishing and throwing company when the value doesn't really come from rock squishing and throwing? It comes from it comes from counting rocks that have been squished and thrown by potentially somebody else. So. Yeah, no, that's 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 a really great point, and you know the company will no doubt over evolve over time. But the only way that you learn how to do this is by doing. We, you know, we started off with a number of sort of desktop exercises about how you might do this and what it would look like. The truth is that you have to be operating to learn the hard lessons about not only operational delivery but also about about the science and the monitoring and the verification. And so that's why we're both, and and it's really important that we continue to do both. But do you think? Aspects. Do you think over time the value in your company is going to be from operations or from verification? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that the you know the, the secret source is very much in terms of how you prove that this is working, rather than in just the kind of grunt work of doing it, right? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it develops for the company. I mean, there is a real point about operational excellence here. You need to build out trust with the landowners you're working with you know you need to be respectful of the way that they're farming you need to be using contractors who are doing a great job on site and are not damaging the land through going on when it's wet you know there's a there's a whole raft of this both on the operational and the scientific side which you have to be able to deliver to a really high standard and that's that's what we're about at the moment okay so you want part of one of these federations i think there's a carbon business council isn't it if i'm not mistaken yeah, and, you know, we can we we could do a follow up, you know, with some other members of the team to talk about that. But yes, absolutely, we'll we'll work with others in this space, whether it's enhanced weathering or other carbon removal technologies. Okay, so I mean, you've got other people in your space like Lithos and stuff like that. So how similar or different are you to your ostensible competitors? I mean, you've described yourself as being quite geographically constrained, so. There's only sort of so so much you can do in terms of where you operate. So, do you view Lithos as being, you know, like you or better than you or worse than you or just fundamentally different or what? I don't I don't really understand how you guys compare yourselves. Do you have like flexes for uh, uh, who's got the best carbon company? <laughs> I don't think we've got that far yet in terms of flexing. Um, so look, we, we do operate in the US as well. We have a team out in the Pacific Northwest. So there's definitely an. There's, there's definitely an overlap with with Lithos out there. And I think, you know, this is this is a big space. And we're going to, 
you know, we're going to find ourselves working alongside all sorts of other developers and enhanced weathering companies. And the point is that the challenge is so big, we need to be able to work alongside them. Well, that's all very um, charming. But what I really want to do is get you to trash talk some other companies. So who do you think are cowboys or what type of companies do you think are cowboys who've got no more right to be on God's clean earth than a weasel, to quote Lord Edmund Blackadder? <laughs> so look, I'm, I'm not going to trash talk anyone. The stuff that we, the stuff that we do look out for is um, that within some silicate rocks, you know, including some basalts, there is always the potential that you encounter high levels of potentially toxic elements, things like nickel and chromium. And we're always looking for other people in this space and, you know, in to see that they are applying the same level of due diligence around those aspects as we are. And, you know, when you look, we co-created the Puro Earth methodology for enhanced weathering with Lithos and, you know, both of us. And that within that methodology, you know, there are, there are upper limits for those potentially toxic elements which keep this practice safe for use on agricultural land. And that's the, that's the bit that's really critical, I think, as we... Okay. As we and, and what happens if you get that wrong? Do you, are you just not able to farm the fields for a certain amount of time or what happens? Well, so we, we, we've done some research about, you know, what the theoretical impact on the background concentrations of those levels in soils would be. And actually, the, the, within the limits we've set ourselves, the variation is incredibly low. And okay, are you just lucky? Because my understanding no, we, of it was that... No, 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 no. We, we spent a lot... You know, this is our start point. Which well, was, well let, me, let me explain why. I mean, that, well, that, that lucky part isn't just random because we had a podcast quite recently about enhanced weathering, um, an episode entitled Heavy Metal, right? Um, about precisely this problem. And the, and the issue they were trying to deal with in that podcast was that the... Um, the heavy metal concentration seemed to be broadly proportional to the carbon removal, right? So you, you ended up, you know, if you made the carbon removal better, then you tend to make heavy metal worse, right? So it wasn't an easy problem to solve. But what you're describing is that you either by good fortune or by taking lots of care, you were able to break that relationship. So I want to understand how you're addressing the issue in terms of stopping heavy metal being, a, you know, an inevitable byproduct and a problematic one as a, the processes that you're engaged in right yeah so it's, i think it's pretty straightforward from an operational side we screen up front and we do an analysis of the chemistry as well as the mineralogy of the rock and you know at that stage if we're above those limits that, that have been set in the methodology we just dis, we just discount that rock supply and, okay so uh, you think that by carefully picking rocks you can find ones that good carbon reduction potential but yet are also not uh, got unacceptably high levels of heavy metal right yeah and we and you know we see some we see really high level that's in that hasn't constrained you know the the volume of rock that is available to us or at least not significantly okay but it's a but it's an important step but sorry i, I stepped on jinran so i'll let him pick up on that question if i may no absolutely i mean it's a very sim- similar line of answer there but also yeah i mean we very cautiously chose Basalt, which as a rock is broadly low potential toxic elements like nickel and chromium, but nonetheless, we do screen every quarry. And I believe then every 3000 tons of basalt we move out of a quarry, we measure them again, just to make sure that, you know, the level of heavy metals hasn't changed and the levels are still consistently below our, you know, our own internal safety limits. And so, yeah, so it's a very cautious approach. But but yeah, also, I think there are other enhanced weathering 
out there using other materials that's not basalt, which some of them are very fast weathering, but, but occasionally come with the potential downside of much higher levels of potential toxic elements. But but that's why I, I think we have chosen to use basalt, which as a rock is... Rather than what wellastonite or something like that, right? Well, last night, so it's very fast weathering, but I, I don't think it depends on where you are. Uh, they're very small deposits around the world, but I haven't seen any data around last night heavy metal content. Um, but, you know, I have read papers on heavy metal contents of things like olivine, which is very fast weathering, but usually has much higher levels of. Yeah, I think that's where the trade off was uh, the one that was being described by other people that, you know, those olivines and last night are where you get the best bang for your buck, but you also have to be very careful about polluting the land and therefore you want to use it on things like cotton, like Project Carb Down are using, rather than using it on food crops where people are going to eat the residue because yeah. that has the, the challenge of making sure that, you know, you're not introducing that into the food chain. And it, because that, you know, you can't, you can't break, break down heavy metals, right? So, they're likely, I assume, to be bioaccumulative. So if you've got crops, that are like fodder crops, that are being used to feed pigs or whatever, I guess the pigs are going to end up concentrating the heavy metals and then ending up your bacon will have a higher level of heavy metals than the pig feed would, right? So well, 100% gets worse. Yeah, our, our first concern is not to contaminate land, and that's our highest priority. And also, we that's also why we have these large-scale agronomy trials where you know, we have much high, like double application density. So we spread at, at a certain application density and we have trials at double and even higher rates than that. Uh, so we spread at 20 tons per hectare. We have trials in our test sites at 200 tons per hectare, for example, just to check. We then measure that crop for the uptake of those heavy metals to make sure that even at the much, much higher levels of basal application, there's still no elevated level of change in terms of the heavy metals and potential toxic elements that the plant is picking up. Okay, so you can be fairly sure because you've basically kind of done a destructive testing of some poor chap's field that your regular fields are not going to be knackered as a result of what you're doing, right? So yeah, so yeah, taking cautious approach. Yeah, and we we have been cautious all the way through, and that's as as Jinran says, that's why we use basalt in preference to other materials. So yeah, we have a we have a sister company. Um, uh, they own some land, and we. We've, uh, we've used their land for the trolls. And so that's that's how we've arranged that. Okay. Unfortunately, it's a rather boring interview because you're not you're doing anything up, stupid. You? I can shout. Yeah, I was going to say, we're fed up because we're not doing anything daft. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. I mean, like this, I want, I want to kick you in the face and I just can't. And it's like, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound like a fanboy, but I actually went to a trade show specifically because you guys were there and I want to kind of see what you did. And meet you and that's actually how i don't know whether i met either of you two at the trade show but you i met and, some of you you and i had a good spar over our desk actually particularly oh, yeah, right, yeah. some of these and i really enjoyed it it was great a bit face blind you'll have to excuse me so i can't really recognize people unless they're wearing the same hat i can't recognize them when i see them a second time so my apologies for my autism uh, so yeah we had, we had a good spar i'm persuaded to come on the review two podcast it's obviously fairly successful because you've come on the review two podcast but as I say, it's a, it's a bit dull for everybody because you're not doing anything that's obviously stupid. If I wanted to buy carbon off you, how much would the carbon cost if you were to sell it to me? Yeah, you'd ha- you'd have to talk to the commercial team about that. But we that's a very mealy mouthed answer. Yeah, well, at least the price I'm... range. Well, so we're selling at the moment between about 150 and 200 dollars a ton. That's quite cheap. 
I mean, yeah, like, uh, I mean, so Climeworks is like six hundred dollars a ton, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so kind of, the, what's seen as being a global target is about hundred dollars a ton. So you're only, you know, you only got to get a kind of roughly thirty to fifty percent price reduction, and you're down at what is, you know, widely considered to be the global target, right? Yeah, and that's ex- that's exactly where we're where we're heading. You know, we're on that we're on that downward trajectory, and that hundred dollars a ton is is the target we've set ourselves. Okay, and how scale constrained are you? I mean, like. How many carbons can you do? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So obviously, you know, the UK is a small island floating in the Atlantic, and it's well, that's what we've talked about. But the the scale really comes as we start to move into other territories. And the truth is that we haven't found the upper limit yet. You know, there are okay. there are huge reserves of rock close to large tracts of agricultural land, which crucially get enough rainfall for the weathering to take place. And so as to, I say, we're on the farm. Is it 10 billion tons of carbon and 40 billion billion tons of carbon dioxide annually, right? Sorry, say that again. So it's 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 10 billion tons of carbon and 40 billion tons of or 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide annually that have got that we're making, right? Yep. And then we've got to sequester that and get rid of it, right? Yep. yep. So um what what I'm trying to understand is how much of that could you do? I mean, could I ask you to, you know, get rid of all of my carbon for me if I wanted to, if I was the world king? Or, or would you say, oh, sorry, we can only do two and then we've run out of farms or run out of basalt or what? I mean, I yes. guess from your point of view, the road grinding is the, the thing that you run out of first, isn't it? So yeah, you know, so, yeah, so eventually we will come up against that limit. But as I say, we, we haven't found it yet. The Our company's aims is that we will put enough rock down by 2025 that it will be sufficient to sequester a megaton of carbon, and that's that's a really ambitious goal. But it's a a megaton, yeah, million tons of carbon dioxide. So you've got four orders of magnitude to go after that, and then we're home. Yeah, exactly. Should have that Um, done by tea time. Yeah, so you know this is this is scalable. We haven't found the upper limit, and we've got some pretty ambitious targets. But your economics depend on people building roads, right? So well, it depends. It depends on people. It depends on people quarrying this particular type of rock, so you know which is predominantly used for construction. Uh, and there's a lot of what, construction what, that goes on. Yeah, but I mean, like, there's an obvious limit to that, right? You know, you yeah. can't. What the economics can look like when it's no longer a byproduct, and you've got to actually make it. Yeah, no, I think that's that will become a challenge in time. And the honest answer is that we're still working on that. That'll that'll be a really that'll be a big piece of work. I mean, it's handy that it's a byproduct. Like, I mean, I'd imagine crushing your own rock is going to cost you a lot of money, right? You could, uh, I mean, just one thought: you can you can potentially use, uh, for example, like a a wind powered crusher, right? So when when it's windy, you do a when there's excess power, you can do excessive amounts of crushing, and then do- yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a dis- dispatchable loads right it's a it's, or a sheddable load right so that you can do it when there's power on the grid or not do it and there's no power on the grid yeah, yeah but exactly. you know as a, as a general rule you're going to have enormously increased costs once it's no longer a byproduct right so you're 150 a ton which works perfectly well now if you're going to instantly hit a scale limit when you've run out of the byproduct so you know when, once people are no longer doing this at scale where it's bigger than the carbon drawdown that you need or can get anyone to pay for you're going to then suddenly have to start crushing your own rocks and then you're 
costs are going to skyrocket. So, I mean, is that going to leave you back at $450 a tonne or is it only going to be, say, $155 a tonne? Because there's a big difference, isn't there, right? If, if you know, a lot of your grinding energy is, if your grinding energy is dominant in your economics, right, then you're going to find that you, you sort of bump up against a pretty hard limit pretty soon. And what looks like a pretty good idea at small scale then goes utterly pear-shaped as soon as you try and get it to go any bigger, right? Yeah, So, but we know that, you know, the aggregate industry globally is billions and billions of tons of aggregate production, of which percentage is the material that we need in the form so of that was, so, that, so, that, so that so the the aggregate industry is actually on a comparable scale to the amount of CO2 that we make. That's quite mind-bending, isn't it? Because we make an awful lot of CO2. I don't think of myself as I don't sort of pop down to the shop for a bag of gravel when I go and buy my shopping, right? So it's not as apparent to me when I'm no. that I'm consuming aggregates. But I guess when I drive over a bridge or something like that, or, or bury one of my enemies in cement or something like that, then I'm using aggregates for that kind of thing, right? Yeah, and you know, construction is just is just continuing to grow across all all, all parts of the world. Um, yeah, as a, and poor you know, people I, decide they selfishly want to live in buildings as well. Uh, so and. Uh, and and so, you know, there is, you're absolutely right. In theory, we get to the point where, you know, we can't use byproduct anymore, but the, this runway to get there is enormous. All right. Are you bored of me yet? Or have you got other things you want to tell me? I'm not bored. Okay. <laughs> That's, have you, you run, out, be, have you run out of things to say? Andrew, you can't be bored on this podcast. I, I haven't got anything else. Shinran, do you want to pick anything else up? No, I'm... I... I also don't have anything else, but, uh, you know, if there's any other questions for me, happy to answer them. I mean, more uh, importantly, Andrew, are you bored with us? Well, no, I'm not bored of you. I mean, I'm just struggling to find things to hate you for, really, which is disappointing me because I feel like I'm letting reviewers all over the world down by not being unpleasant enough. But I think I think the biggest... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say you can at least hate us for that, so that seems fair. Well, no, I think it's a bit meta, isn't it? It's a bit... It's a bit un- I, I, I hate I hate you for being too likable. I mean, like, I really isn't. You know, if I was that unpleasable, I'd have to go and work for a local authority somewhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, the only problem I can see with what you're doing is that I'm. A, I think a lot of these ideas, it's very easy to kind of um, dance around and tell everyone how great they are when they're only the size of a small boulder. But when you want to scale it up to the size of a large boulder, then it becomes a lot more complicated, right? So you're gonna you're gonna find all kinds of limits, I think, with this enhanced weathering malarkey that's gonna cause you merry hell as soon as it starts to get a bit bigger, because you're gonna have things like, you know, you're gonna have farms that are harder to work because the ground conditions they're more limited in terms of the acid or alkali profile. You know, you might have more and more SSSI, so it's a special scientific interest restrictions you're going to have more farms that are too far away and then you're going to limit when you get to global agri-construction demand makes it all go pear-shaped so it all looks sunny and rosy at small scale but i think that like a lot of nice ideas there are some pretty gnarly scale limitations that are going to be popping up uh, when you try and do much that's bigger right that's where i think you're going to have problems yeah I think that's absolutely fair in terms of the trajectory that we're on. But it goes back to the point about, look, if you do this yourself and you learn the lessons early, 
you can get ahead rather than sure. just being a you know platform provider who says to others, well, you come and do the rock slinging and we'll do the bit that we think. Yeah, so you're trying to be a safety nut service and you're trying to, you know, be in, in, I mean, you've got quite a cool brand. It's like you've got a two-syllable name and it's, you know, it's kind of quite funky. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a memorable brand and you're doing something which is quite easy to feel good about, I think, really. And so I can see what you're doing is making sense for people who are buyers of carbon credits. And hopefully your funky brand won't put sensible farmers off too much who like traditional things. But um, it seems to be a reasonably good approach to integrate from a branding point of view. But my concern is like, um, are you guys raising investment at the moment or not? Yeah, so we will we will go through an investment round this year, I suspect. Okay, so just a usual caveat supply reviewer two is not financially affiliated with undo carbon if you give them your money you should assume that you might lose it and therefore don't give them any that you can't afford to lose but given those caveats what is the situation with your investment round are you looking only for institutional funders is it open to the public is it a big investment round that you're doing or is it just sort of topping up what you've had already how does it fit together with your broader kind of financial and corporate strategy hey andrew what i'd really like to do is I would like to get our CEO on the podcast to talk to you about that. Well, you didn't, so you're not going to no. have the chance, are you? <laughs> I think you could do a follow-up with him. I think it would be really interesting. That's very greedy. That. Um, <laughs> okay. I think but if it's too lazy to set up, it doesn't get a go. Um, <laughs> when, you, when you do your funding round properly, then we might, if we're feeling very charitable, yeah. let you come back. So Undo is raising around, but we don't know much about it because they've got the wrong person on the podcast. Okay, fine. Well, look, if there's nothing else you... <laughs> would like to say in your defence, then I'm uh, I'm going to um, uh, ask for revisions in in terms of your financial model. So you've not got yourself the traditional reviewer two rejection yet, because I'd like to understand a bit more about your scaling and uh, how you're going to solve the problems that come from growing a company and growing a market, which might look all very shiny and lovely at small scale, but has at least a non-trivial chance of getting to be gnarly and horrible at a bigger scale. Would that be a, a fairly sensible um, judgment of your situation at the moment? Andrew, I think that's a, I think that's a, fair, that's a fair review. And um, as I say, we'd love to do a follow-up to talk about some of that scaling. Okay. Well, you'll be, I think this is the first time we've sent someone away for major revisions. Um, so uh, we're going to, that's the verdict you've got. So um, well done. You are uh, you're not the first person to be accepted, though, or the first person not to be rejected. We have actually accepted a few, a few people or papers. We haven't got paper from you, obviously. So we're, we're rejecting your very persona. You're, you're the sum total of all of your achievements on earth. The fi- every fibre of your being is being judged by a reviewer too, because you haven't got a paper that we can point, poke holes in or laugh at. But uh, anyway, you've got major revisions. So improve your, improve your commercial numbers your economic analysis and come back to us and we might accept your paper thanks for coming on we got what we got a paper in the pipeline too so we'll have that oh you have you on actual real paper it's very bold tell me about that it's coming out so i think it's uh it's going to be out in time for the next round i think oh okay well and what's that about tell me about that because that's all new i didn't know you'd have because when you bring companies on you just assume that they're a bunch of uh greedy charlatans who don't do any proper work so that didn't, didn't even occur to me that you might have a paper to talk about so tell me about your paper no we're trying to do proper science and having our peers assess our quality of our work no the first one we have we have a few in the pipeline but the first one 
is coming out will be on the co-benefits that we were discussing. So we have been running trials ourselves in our land, but also in collaboration with some academic partners, national labs. So this one will be in collaboration with Newcastle University. We've been doing trials on their research farm, very well managed soil, really well understood soil in their farm that they've been kind of running trials for multi-decades. So we've been running some kind of yield, some yield trials there to test you know, as I mentioned earlier about the benefits to crop by raising that pH, releasing those nutrients, what what kind of yield response can you expect to see just from the basal application? Because it's still pretty light hammer because you have a lot of powerful factors that can change yield, right? And basal application that that low density, 20 tons per hectare, only two kilos per square meter is a pretty mild hammer just to see what kind of response you can get from that. And Isn't that just down in the noise, though? That's what you would think that, but I think I think you might be pleasantly interested in the results we're about to publish, and then and then also along with analysis of the we then we then also had a full digest of the plant to to check for all the potential toxic elements in in the plant tissues just to make sure that there's no addition. All oh, right, so you so you squish the plants or burn them or boil them or bake them or whatever, and so you've got a heavy metal profile. I guess you're testing the ash, right, to try and find out what's remaining after your barley or whatever it is has grown right yeah we do a full acid digest of the plant and then we use ice pms to measure various heavy metals and other potential toxic elements. ice pms what's ice pms <laughs> it's uh, it's just a it's a, just a measurement technique standardly used in this field to measure for heavy metals well yeah i figured that but you, oh, so it's like, actually inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry so all oh, right okay. <laughs> well yeah i mean that's a, that's a more useful description i think Right, an no, idea of roughly how mass, mass spectrometer that allows you to open up the various elemental masses and study what kind of elements is in in your plant. Okay, so just to the science of that, so what you're doing is you're creating a, a gas plasma, and when you create a gas plasma, then that means that you're looking at individual ions, and you normally have a, a single, like a one minus ion that you're putting through in the plasma, and then you're steering that by looking at how much an electric field can shift this this iron going through your analysis equipment and it bends it more if it's a lighter iron and it bends it less if it's a big heavier iron so your hydrogens would only bend would bend a long way and your uraniums would bend not at all or not very much right and then you get a nice little kind of like a rainbow of atoms ions come from your plasma that's roughly how it works right yeah it's techniques so so we we use a myriad of different digest techniques but that that is one of them and yeah, so this is definitely a technique we used extensively when I was in mines building dark matter and neutrino detectors to measure our, our detectors for nuclear contaminations. Uh, but now also we're using this infield to measure, uh, to digest. Okay. The, so you've got a paper coming out on that. When's that due? Has it been, has it been sent to the, uh, the peer review yet or not? And it's, in, it's in the process of being, so as I mentioned, we're collaborating with Newcastle. So it's being reviewed by our academic partners just because they're going to co-author the paper with us so they're in the process of checking they're happy with the content and then we'll be publishing that shortly after that okay that's pretty cool and what what other papers have you got Uh, i think i think our plan is to so we're developing a geochemical model which is kind of it's based on a model that's been extensively peer-reviewed already that's been published in the past uh, is that a computer a computerized model that you're using like a gis type thing that you can take your sort of terrain data from a farm and your soil profile and then map on enhanced weather into this? Sort of, yeah. So, I mean, so our geochemical model essentially allows us to 
apply. So we take myriads of different input parameters like the soil conditions, weather conditions, and then we apply basalt to that soil. And then it allows us to predict how much weathering has taken place over multi-decade scale, if that, if that makes sense. So Okay. So it's like a, a bit like FaceApp, but for fields. So you can kind of age your fields artificially and show how it all works in you know a hundred years time what might have happened to your field you, using you can, a computer model yeah so we're tracking what's happening to our basalt in our field and then as a, as a way to estimate how much carbon dioxide we can sequester over the, the time the multi-decades time scale where the weathering take place yeah okay um, and what other so you've got the you know, plasma ash analysis or acid analysis you're not using ash you're using acids and then you're using uh, you've got a model a numerical model to see how the weathering might occur over a century or whatever. So what other papers have you got in the works? Because that's what people really want to hear about. Like, I mean, it's all very well to do your corporate advertising thing, but a bunch of scientists listen to this podcast. Uh, therefore, they want to understand the nitty gritty of what actual science you're doing. So, Sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we're doing an extensive amount of science. So, so I think as Ben mentioned, you know, uh, to date, there's no single method that's proven accurate in quantifying the amount of CO2 that's being sequestered. And that's probably this large barrier to entry for scalability as well. Because, you know, I always said enhanced rock weathering seems like this like triple win situation because you're taking a byproduct using existing infrastructure to spread an agriculture land. So no changes in any of the those uses of roads and lands. And you have all the myriads of co-benefits for farmers. And then you also have this Obviously, the most important thing is removing actively removing CO two from the atmosphere. But one of the current barrier, yeah, current things that we're working on is developing a robust MRV approach that can be scaled for global operations alongside, you know, deploying and spreading that basalt on all the lands. So yeah, so we have you know we have a geochemical modeling team. As I already mentioned earlier, I'm not a geochemist. I very much a particle physicist, but trying to bring my particle physics background and experience and expertise into this field. But we, we you have... sit on a different table in the canteen because you're better no, than no, the uh, geochemist. We are hundred percent all say sit in the same table, and actually, it's quite it's been a delight to work with. So the science team we're about twelve people now, and I have rarely worked with a group of people with such a diverse range of expertise and experience. So we have soil scientists. We have geochemists, we have microbiologists, we have particle physicists like me, and we're all trying to tackle this really difficult problem, but from different perspectives and backgrounds. And it's been actually really, really fun. So how many people work for Undo at the moment, then? I think it's about 60. Is that correct, Ben? No, it's a bit under. We're we're low 50s at the moment. That's quite a lot. It's much bigger than I thought it was being. And is that mainly funded by venture capital? Is it mainly funded by customer subscriptions from people like Frontier? Uh, so it's funded, funded by a bit of both. And I guess the important point about that is you need a big team because you have to pr- approach this from a sort of systems perspective. And it's not just the science, it's not just the operations, but it's also how you design the product that you're selling onto the carbon market. And, you know, you've talked about the brand and all the work that goes into that. So that that's why we're a big team, but it also gives us an inherent advantage as we go to scale. So... Who do you sell to other than Frontier? Yeah, so we've got a number of clients who actually predated the Frontier Fund. We're still working with them. And um, yeah, there are others. We'd go through platform sellers, of course, who are essentially selling on to their own clients. 
Okay, so they're like intermediaries. They sort of aggregate the carbon and then sell it carbon from a number of sources. I guess there's a degree of redundancy, right? So if you're buying carbon from a lot of little startups, then you don't want to be in a position where if one of them finds it doesn't work quite as well as they thought it did, then everything stops, right? You want to have, you know, buying a bit more than you need. And then hopefully the few people that fail will be not enough to kind of mess everything up as a whole, right? Yeah, and you also find that companies want a mixture of different types of carbon credits. So they'll want some which are cheaper and lower permanence, some that are more expensive and more permanent, which is where we find ourselves. And customers will generally put, take a portfolio approach. But you're actually in quite a sort of weird sort of midpoint, aren't you, with enhanced weathering? And biochar is a bit like that as well. And biochar lasts quite a long time. It's not quite as, it's not as long as enhanced weathering, which is obviously a very, very long-lived thing. But um, do you not kind of feel that you sort of fit in a valley of death in a way you've got you're not kind of quite shiny enough to be like client works where people want the kudos of being associated with the whiz bang technologies that makes everyone feel that they're all very clever but you're much more expensive than people who lie about trees which is your competitor at the bottom end of the market right yeah so i i don't think it's a valley of death i think i think we've fitted a really neat midpoint because i don't think anyone i don't think anyone that we have spoken to from commercial perspective thinks that you can get to meaningful volumes of sales at a price point much north of $200. So, you know, those really expensive technologies that are developing, they've got a long way to go to come down the cost curve to the point at which they can do large-scale large scale contracts. I mean, bearing in mind that people like you, you know, normally with the cheaper credits, right, they're just rubbish. And like, I think Vera, I, think, I can't remember if it was Vera who was being criticised or Vera who was doing the audit, but something to do with Vera found that I think 95 or 97% of carbon credits that were sold, that nature-based solutions were just a lie. They just, you know, there was, there was just no carbon associated with them at all. It was just nonsense, right? So, um, the, you know, it, I don't think it'd be too hard to make a case for people to spend a bit more money and do something like what you're doing. Uh, but when it comes to competing with people like Climeworks and stuff like that, who you know, somewhere around three times more expensive than you are. What's the what's the angle with that? I mean, are people just giving money to climates because they think one day they might be cheaper, or you know, are they doing it because it's mainly just very newsworthy and it's you don't get. I mean, like objectively, you guys don't get as much press as people like Climeworks do, do you? Right? You know, someone driving a gritter around in drizzle is just not as sexy as a Climeworks factory, and so you 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 kind of you're a bit the sort of Cinderella technology. Um, so look, I think there's just lower awareness. And one of the things that we have to do and that our commercial team, you know, are getting very good at is, is educating buyers about what it is we're doing, why it's permanent, why it has value and why it's different to, you know, direct air capture or some of the other technologies. And, you know, the challenge will always be that, that a lot of buyers want a meterable solution. Um, and this isn't that. And so we have to we have to take them on, you know, we have to explain to them what we're doing in terms of MRV and why what we're doing is credible. So the problem is if you, you've got a non-meterable solution and you're dealing with a corporate ecosystem, which is so steeped in falsehood as the market that you're operating in, it becomes quite difficult for you to, I mean, I, you know, personally, I don't think that you guys are like illegitimate and shonky. I'm not saying that, I mean, I haven't audited your MRV, but I've got a pretty good ear to the ground in the industry and I've got a pretty good intuitive feel for when people are bullshitting me about things to do with carbon. And, and I don't get that impression from you guys. You seem 
pretty legit. But my, I would imagine that you have a difficult time sometimes distinguishing yourself from people who whose stock in trade is telling fibs about forests, right? <laughs> Sorry, I've got to laugh. I mean, the, the, I but it's true. The, I mean, it's yeah. like it's funny, <laughs> but it's also true. Well, it's not the the you know there are a huge number of project developers out there doing nature based solutions who are doing a great job, but it's really important that you know they continue to get the support for what they're doing. They, yeah, but more importantly, know, there are even larger number of people who aren't right. So you just I, I think the key in this, and I think it's true across the whole market, is that we need to build trust, and we work really hard to build trust within with the organisations and the industries we have to partner with to deliver operations. And we have to build trust with our eventual customers who are buying those carbon credits that we are inc- indeed credible, we're safe, and we're doing the right thing. And that uh, takes Are you time. externally verified or do you use, you rely on your own internal verification? Uh, yeah, so we'll be externally verified for our project and through, through either, well, through the Puro methodology, the predominant thing. Oh, so Puro is a marketplace, but they're also providing you methodological Puro support, don't, right? But Puro, as I understand it, don't have a marketplace anymore. But they oh, they they jacked that in, have they? So we we work with them to develop a methodology. There will be a third party verification body coming in to verify the carbon credits that we produce, and that that gives us a, a reach market. And the people that verify, do they verify your processes and procedures, or do they actually go out into the fields and dig holes and measure stuff? Yeah, so I think I think I think it'll be all of it. So there'll, okay. be, there'll be a an element of audit where we show. You know, we took this rock and we took it to this place, and then there will be the bit, uh, you know, around the results that Jinran and his team provide about the weathering rates. And so, the combination of all of that gives us the sort of through life life cycle analysis, and and gives us an indication of the total sequestration. So, if I buy a carbon off you, how much of the money that I spend for that carbon is the actual amount of money that you've taken to get me my carbon, and how much of it is that the sort of mucking around costs, the marketing and verification and all of the other nonsense. What's the how does it how does it split up between operational costs and what you might call office costs? Yeah, so scale that we're at at the moment, obviously the, the office costs are quite high, but as we go through this year, we'll in, we'll increase our output by an order of magnitude on last year. And so we start to get those down. Um, where they become yeah i mean i was talking in steady i was trying to talk in steady state yeah. right so yeah, when yeah. the company's growing a bit i'm not talking about today because obviously you're setting up all these methodologies so your central cost is going to be really really high but on kind of like a normal tuesday if i go and buy a carbon from you it's like what 10 percent of that cost of the carbon that you sold me going to be yeah. the yeah. cost of uh, that's verifying a, that's, it that's about right at the point at which we get to scale yeah no sorry not yeah. verification but the whole you know the whole package, which includes the office, the office stat, the marketing, the um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so not ninety percent costs, ten percent verification, marketing, and profit on top, right? Yeah, once we want exactly, yeah. Okay, I mean, like you're not going to end up being bazillionaires of the, out of that, are you? I think there's well, so there's a huge market, there's a huge market for scale, and uh, we think that we can get down that cost curve. In fact, we are already getting down that cost curve in some of our operations where there is a decent margin in this. Okay. And won't this end up just being highly competitive? So no one really makes a lot of money out of it. There are a lot of kind of commodity products like milk, for example, where there's a lot of it. I mean, most people have got a bottle of milk in their fridge, but you know, you don't generally feel 
see people driving around with Ferraris with cows painted on the side of them as a result of their milk magnet career. So do you think this is just going to end up with a, a bunch of uh, impoverished guys throwing rocks out the back of tractors or are you guys going to be flying around on private jets as a result of what you're doing? So, you know, once you get once you get up to scale, then actually this this starts to look really good. And um, yeah, so it's all I, just about selling a lot of carbons, right? Yeah, you've got to you've got to you've got to get efficient. Okay, so you're basically you're saying that the, the commercial attractiveness of the investment proposition is down to the sheer scale of the market, rather than because it's a high margin business, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, you, we need to think about commoditization of carbon and it's a whole other it's a whole other subject but you know we talk about the commoditization of carbon and it's probably it's a separate conversation but there is value in the carbon credits that we sell because of their permanence which puts them at greater value than nature-based carbon for example no i get it i understand what you're saying is that yeah look i i fully understand but even if i'm doing an apples to apples comparison and comparing you with other with other enhanced weathering people, it's hard to see how you guys are going to end up uh, on MTV cribs with uh, the business model that you've got. But I guess it's possible that just through sheer brute force of scaling, you might end up of doing a De Beers and ending up dominating a market, which was you know which might naturally look fragmented, just because you could end up getting so dominant in that market and being such a trusted brand that you know there are other brands of cola available, but most of the market value. The market capitalization is down to the major players, you know, Coca-Cola and then uh, PepsiCo, where, you know, the, 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 the value is concentrated in those leading brands that people are aware of and trust and feel comfortable drinking and like the taste of. Right. So I guess it's not inconceivable that something similar could happen in uh, in uh, enhanced weathering. Right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. OK, well, with a bit of street dentistry i've managed to pull a few teeth and get a bit of economic modeling out of you which is quite nice so i'm going to upgrade you to minor revisions only on your economics and um i think that's a wrap anything else you want to say or are we uh, are we now fully done rather than just pretending to be done yeah no thank you very much for having us on the show that was actually a total delight yeah absolutely oh, well, we should have been a bit harder then oh never mind <laughs> learning experience to me all right, anyway, minor revisions. Back at my desk, uh, you've got 48 hours to do minor revisions. Be gone. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you very much.